everybody, Josh Sheridan here with the Barely Legal Podcast. This is a big day for me on the show. Uh, Nikki Freed has agreed to be on the podcast, and this is my first time with a co-host. You know him, you love him. Tom DeGeorge from Crow Barney, where City is here today. Thank you so much, Nikki and Tom, for coming on. Oh, thanks for having me today. Thanks, Josh. I am I'm in my mind trying to think of what your Monday would look like, Nikki. And I imagine it's <laughs> it's from from rise to fall, just 30 minute increments of talking to people. Yeah, that it, it kind of started this morning. Alarm clock goes off. Uh, and, and yes, day starts, and I've got my three stepsons that don't start school until Wednesday. So they were here. So it's making breakfast and being stepmom a little bit in the morning, trying to organize the day. And yet, 30 minute increments of meetings and interviews. And I uh, already had three staff calls already this morning. So it's uh, just nonstop. But that's what, what I, what I want to do is you know, serve our state. And you're still having to work as commissioner of agriculture, right? I mean, you still have a day job. Yep. I, I, right now, I say that I hold four jobs. Wow. Uh, I'm commissioner, I'm governor, I'm emergency management director, and I'm a candidate. So four jobs all at once and all taking up a lot of, a lot of my, my bandwidth, but it's, uh, it's worth it. How has this campaign for you compared to running for the agriculture spot? Has it been just on steroids or is it similar? How, how do you find it? I, I guess in 2018, we didn't have COVID yet. So probably the way that you ran for office was uh, drastically different from this time around. Yeah, drastically different. And also, I was the last person in the race in 2018 from any of the statewide candidates on both Democrat Republicans. So I didn't announce until May uh, for an August primary. Uh, so it was literally uh, a sprint to the finish line with very with no money. Everybody kept saying, what, what is a good Jewish girl from Miami doing running for commissioner of agriculture? Do we, what's a commissioner of agriculture even do? Um, and you're a Democrat? Uh, so it, it was one of those Florida. Florida. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and Florida. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, you know, so so fundraising was uh, was like pulling teeth. Um, and so we were on basically a no budget. Uh, I had two staff members. It was basically my fiance and I, uh, as well as two staffers was the, the extent of the campaign. Uh, no one knew who I was. Um, no one cared who I was. Uh, so I got to come and go as I pleased. And now uh, it, it's a little different. Uh, it's a little different where, you know, it's a national spotlight on this race. Uh, I'm a sitting cabinet member. Uh, and so having to balance my responsibilities as commissioner with, you know, being on the campaign trail and yeah, COVID, you know, we actually this week, unfortunately had to pull down uh, and make two of our fundraisers into Zooms because of, of the current Delta surge. So it's, it's different, um, but it's the same excitement, just talking to people, getting ideas and kind of working through how we make our state better. You mentioned the national spotlight. And so obviously, uh, DeSantis has been named uh, as kind of a potential successor to Trump as who's going to run in the next campaign. Have you noticed a national spotlight on this election here greater than what we would otherwise have expected? A hundred percent. Is there a lot more money, do you think, being flowed flowed into the state from people who have interest in kind of how this goes? Yeah, you'll, you'll get it from every direction. I mean, obviously, you're, you're seeing, you know, DeSantis bringing in a, a lot of money because people are, you know, hoping that he's, you know, their perspective is that he's going to be a 2024 contender. And so they're pouring in money to already on that front. 
Um, and then you're also going to see a lot of money coming in, obviously, on the Democratic side um, because they don't want DeSantis. It's, it's, called, it's a fight for democracy. Uh, and pressure, so right? No, no pressure. So it's not even just, you know, for what's in the best interest of the state of Florida, but, you know, the country and, and the world. Uh, so I've got, you know, all that sitting on my shoulders of knowing that, you know, I, I'm the last, last stopgap um, gate before we, we have a, a potential nightmare on, on our hands. So there's going to be a lot of money. And let's also not forget that there are other Republican money that's going to come into our state, the people that want to be in 2024. Sure. Uh, so you'll see a lot of our on our money being spent to take down DeSantis too. So he's got to have a lot of arrows being thrown at him by other potential 2024 candidates. And quite honestly, I think that he gets too big for his britches. You'll see Trump come in and, and, and pound him down. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I've, I've wondered because, I mean, Trump's been too quiet in my impression. I mean, I'm not complaining, but, you know, it's uh, the, I'm always worried about what the next morning's headlines are going to bring as far as some new. I mean, at least he wasn't, uh, you know, reinstated this past weekend. So that, that was a small, a small win. Um, before we go too much further on the race and, and policy, I just kind of wanted to give people a little bit of a background on, on who you are. So, as I understand it, you were born in Miami. Yep. You and your sister. Yes, younger All sister. Right. We are four years in age and five years in school. And is, is she in Florida still? or? Yep. She okay. and my niece and nephew live in Palm Beach County now. Okay. Okay. And University of Florida for undergrad. Master's oh, law. <laughs> we, we, we bleed orange and blue in our family. So I've got three degrees from UF. I was a student body president there as well my last year. Uh, my sister has two degrees from there. My stepdad has degrees from there. My ex-brother-in-law has two degrees. So we, we, when, uh, when I say we bleed orange and blue, uh, that, that, that's legit. Now, your father was an attorney too, wasn't he? Yep. Yep. And uh, he went to uh, another state school here uh, up in Tallahassee. <laughs> what, what type of law did he practice? Uh, real estate. When did the bug bite you for law or politics? I mean, was that something that was discussed in your home as a, as a kid? Were you aware of politics at a young age or is this something that kind of came into purview later? No, um, I, you know, quite honestly, when I was nine years old, um, my parents asked me what I wanted to do for my 10th birthday. I told them I wanted to go to the White House. Uh, so at, at a very young age, I was already kind of just aware of my surroundings. Um, my dad is a diehard Republican. When I say really? diehard Republican, <laughs> I, I mean, like when I was doing gay pride parades, uh, in high school and soup kitchens in high school, he was um, enrolling me in NRA newsletters, like diehard Republican. Um, I, I now block him on my social media. Um, but I, I think was the only Democrat that he's ever voted for in his life. So I, I wear that with a badge of honor um, where my mom was a school teacher. And, and so she is a, a diehard Democrat. So, you know, we had some pretty, you know, good debates at, at home. Uh, my parents got divorced when I was uh, a little after 13. Um, so kind of saw different perspectives of how we dealt with uh, the economy and, and how we dealt with just inner, you know, personal relationships. And um, and so it was but we always we, we talk politics. I was aware I was vice president in my middle school, um, had I, I made friendship bracelets and gave those out and said, you have a friend in freed. Uh, so that was my my middle school. Strong, that's a strong theme. I, I maybe we can. Bring that back, you, you know. Yeah, bring it back. Right. Yeah. Both my parents were school teachers. Tom's wife is a school teacher. And it's, you know, you bring that up as far as uh, political affiliation. And, you know, obviously Rick Scott wasn't a friend to school teachers. And 
it was interesting. I, I, I can't remember specifically what the issue was, but I remember when Sanders first started, some of his policy seemed to be a little bit of a reprieve from what Rick Scott had been doing. But now where he's threatening salaries and all this on the you know school mask mandate, it seems like he's done a 180 on kind of where he started at. Yeah, I, I mean, quite honestly, you know, I was I was hopeful, you know, after the 2018 elections, um, even though we, we lost the rest of the Democratic ticket, I, I really saw both, you know, all four of us members of the cabinet were all under the age of 50, um, all had young families uh, and really thought that this was going to be an opportunity for us to show the rest of the country what it looks like to have bipartisan support on issues and to work together, whether it is education or the environment or, or, you know, our relationship with, with you know, uh, other countries like the state of Israel and, and being that our first trade mission. So I really saw this going to be different. Um, I knew Ashley Moody from undergrad and law school. And then we practiced together a little bit in, in Jacksonville. I knew Jimmy Petronas, when he, who's our CFO, um, when he was in the legislature and really thought that there was going to be an opportunity. And then Ron, you're right. Just I don't know what happened to him. Um, or he just went back to who he really is. I, I think he may have fooled our state in 2019 and, and then went back to who he truly is. I mean, we all remember his commercials during 2018. Right, with the with his kids. And he right. went to Yale with a buddy of mine who who is generally votes uh, Democrat, but went to college with him and just swears by him. I was like, I, I don't I don't know what what your experience of him is behind closed doors, but what I'm seeing, you know, in the media is not is not doing it for me. Um, where was I going to go just there? Oh, oh, well, you mentioned uh, Moody, who I, I know as Judge Moody because she was here in Hillsborough County. So I practiced in front of her a bunch and I loved her. And then, you know, since she's been in office and kind of seen some of the policy stuff she's done there, it just breaks my heart because I just wonder, are these people revealing who they are? Or is it just that once you're in office, you're, you're uh, you know, resigned to have to serve all these other gods that are kind of responsible for getting you the seat. I'm just kind of wondering how that transition yeah. happens. Yeah, you know, I, I think a couple of things happen. Like if you are, if you don't walk into office with a true understanding of who you are as a person and the things that you fundamentally believe in and the things that you want to fight for, there are a lot of external factors in the political world between having to fundraise and making sure that you got the who to talk to, how to talk to, what's going to persuade them to give you money. Then you have the whole lobby crew, you know, that that is constantly, you know, asking for things and asking you to do things. Um, and then you have all your consultants around you to tell you, well, if you don't do this and you don't say this, you're not going to win your next election. And so you have all these external forces. And if you're not strong enough as a person and, and your convictions, it's easy to kind of go with the times. And I think, unfortunately, I, you know, for, for Ashley, and that's really what's happened to Ashley, mm-hmm. you know, is that she, you know, kind of got she's a strong, strong person. I mean, she's not a pushover. No, she's yeah. not. But I think that she may not have because she was in the world of lawyer and judge mm-hmm. that now she's in the role of a politician. I, don't, I understand you're attorney general, but you're still an elected Republican politician. And, and I think that uh, that along the way, you know, she's scared of her own shadow. And, and so she's just kind of following what she believes or is being told to believe this is how you prevent a primary. This is how you win your general election. This is how you fundraise and has unfortunately um, done the one thing that she promised not to do, which was to use the attorney general's office um, for, pol- for for partisan political gains. And unfortunately, that's what she's done. So that's that's a good transition point. Uh, 
I'm going to on the first talking point, then I'll pass it to Tom on, on live music. But uh, I'm hearing that DeSantis's children are going to a school where they have mask mandates, a private school, or at least they're they're wearing masks, if not a mask mandate at the private school. Yet his policy doesn't reflect what his personal life is, is, uh, you know, showing. And so it, it seems to me that this is just a political him, you know, playing to his base. Is that your impression of this? Yeah, without a doubt. I, I don't think that anybody can doubt that. You know, if, if you look at the policies that's coming out of him and the Department of Education on, on this, you know, no mask mandate. And, and look, at the end of the day, just give it to the locals. Let them decide what is best for, for their own communities. Every community in our state is different. Dade County is different than Polk County. And so you're going to have different issues. And so he has really taken this authoritarian, you know, concept to a new extreme and overreaching of government, which is counter to what the Republicans are supposed to stand for, you know, and so has really done this. And, and what's interesting is that he's done this mandate uh, to the school boards and now threatening their funding um, for public education. And for public schools. And so you've got private schools that don't have the same policies and you've got charter schools that could do their own thing as well. And so you're really mandating this for a certain portion of the population. Who historically have gotten beaten up. Yeah. Right. For sure. Absolutely. And, And, you know, when you then look at what's happened, even in Lee County, Lee County, which is red of red, 90% of the parents are sending their kids in masks. So even those red areas and the parents that are, are, you know, Republican are not agreeing with him. They all are sending their kids in masks. And so all he's doing is is forcing his will uh, on the entire state of Florida, where he's only appeasing to, let's just use Lee County as an example, to 10 percent of the base. So his policies for 90 percent of the state is only trying to appease 10 percent of the state and putting people's. Um, you know, children in harm's way. Like, and, and I was given this example, which I think is so, you know, uh, just telling, you know, if, if you go into like a, an elementary school's orientation with parents and a parent says, listen, my kid has a severe, severe peanut allergy. I'm really asking you parents, please don't pack lunches that have peanuts, you know, things in peanuts, because I, I don't want, you know, kids share food during the day. Right. You would never Say, you know what? Screw it. I'm going to send peanuts. I'm not going to listen to that parent. If their kid gets sick, their kid gets sick. That would never happen. The parent would be like, of course, I'm not going to send peanuts into the class with kids. Right. And that's and that's what we're happening here. And, and instead of showing leadership, letting your local schools do what they need to do and, and have a policy that's reflective of the state. Um, he's, you know, he's more concerned about watching, you know, his kids smile uh, than he is about seeing them actually live. Tom was just telling me a story of a video that I guess came out in the past couple of days. It was, did you say it was from Tennessee? Oh, yeah. It, the, it, there's it a, 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 guy, a father who went and testified before the local city council or something like that. And there's a video of him effectively being like attacked uh, yeah. after the fact for just voicing his opinion on it. He was calling his wife saying goodbye to her because he thought that, you know, it was it's, whatever. It's around his vehicle. It was, it was actually like a town hall where they were discussing mask mandates and he wanted to go in there and talk about why it was important for his family. And he said that halfway through the the meeting that, that the sheriff's office had come in and and they could hear chanting outside. He knew something was up. And so when he went to go leave, the whole parking lot was just filled with protesters that were aggressive and they had surrounded his vehicles. It was just crazy. 
That's insane. You know what? That's one thing that, that uh, like people are not understanding what this is doing because we don't have, you know, uh, I, I'm going to call them the radical right. It's not even Republican. It's radical right. You know, and they're creating chaos in, in our country. You know, the, you're, you're not seeing that type of activity on the other side. You're, you're not seeing people who want to have a mass, you know, mass, uh, you know, you know, restrictions in, in, in their schools are not going and beating up people. They're, they're, they're not doing things like that. So this is creating such unnecessary chaos in our state when if we just had rational thinking, scientists around you, medical professionals, and saying, listen, this is what's best for our kids. I'm like, look, I, I've got three stepsons. You know, they, they don't live in Florida. They live in, in, in Atlanta and they are starting school on Wednesday and they're going to be in masks the, the entire year. And so I've had conversations with them. What do you think about this? They don't like it. No one likes wearing a mask. I don't like wearing a mask. You don't like wearing a mask. But you know what? If that is my only safeguard for them because they're under 12 is to wear a mask or to potentially open up to them being vulnerable to exposure, we're going to wear a damn mask. Right. Uh, before I throw it over to Tom on live music, you mentioned the, the radical right. Has that something that you have felt pressure from? I mean, is that, is that something that you're, you know, are you getting hounded by that group of people? Is that something that you're concerned with? No, I mean, I'm, they're going to constantly be harassing because they're not going to be on the same page as me. Um, but I, you know, put them in a little box and I realized that they are a loud minority, loud minority and that I've got to be, I represent 22 million people in our state and I got to come up with policies and initiatives that I believe in the best interest for everybody. Right. And, you know, it's the same thing, you know, you and I are attorneys, you know, same things that we learn about, you know, the freedom of speech. You know, that that this is a protected freedom in our Constitution, but it's not without limits. And right. the same thing that the first part of our Constitution is life, liberty and the pursuit of happiness. You know, we got to protect life. And, and that's what, the, you know, the responsibility, unfortunately, unfortunately, in some cases is of government is to work with our health departments and our health. Like our job is to protect the health and the life of the people of our state. And so I got to be looking at policies that are going to do that. Right. All right. Well, Tom is on uh, today. Tom has been uh, really involved in helping live music venues in, in the state of Florida and re really throughout the country. I'm always nervous that I'm going to say something I'm not supposed to, Tom. So I'm going to I'm going to tag you in and let you kind of ask some questions. But obviously, the first round of this was getting the government assistance for live music venues that had been shut down. And then one of the new things that we're facing is uh, the prohibition on being able to check vaccination cards to put on live shows and how that's impacting a lot of the touring uh, entertainment and musicians. So go ahead, Tom. Yeah. So future governor Freed. Um, <laughs> yes. I, I worked on behalf of the national independent venue association to advocate for venues in our state. Um, in, and um, that was a year of advocacy uh to try to get the Save Our Stages Act passed. Um, so I had the benefit of communicating with many different states. And, and one of the things I found that was so interesting was a lot of people would say to me, even though we were shut down for seven months, people would say, well, look at this, you know, you could be shut down like these other states that were shut down for longer. And I'd have to explain to them, like, listen, those other states got state funding. You know, they, they were closed for maybe a year, maybe a few months longer than me, but they got state funding. We got no state funding. So um, 
and I had reached out to the governor's office and, and we got zilch. We got zero after being closed for seven months and paying 100% of our bills. Um, and now that we can be open, many states um, are going to proof of vaccination because artists that tour around the country um, want to make sure that they stay healthy. And that's the best way they can make sure they stay healthy because if the margins on tours are very small. So if you miss like a week of tour or two weeks of tour, you just tanked your whole tour. So I guess my question for you would be um, in this sort of situation, um, we didn't see the governor do much for small businesses, if at all, if anything, what, what would you have done differently um, in that situation? Yeah, a couple of things, you know, first off, you're absolutely right, you know, that so many of our small businesses, you know, had to shut her down. And even as we're dealing with this Delta variant, you know, governor keeps wanting to saying, well, we're open, we're open for business, we're free, we're free, we're free. Well, if all of your employees are sick, you're closing down and not realizing that the economic impact of not getting the vaccine and not get not supporting the vaccine, not getting Delta variant under control, that the economic impact is significant because of the fact that everybody is sick. Um, and, and so what should have been done is that we should have compensated. I mean, look, no, nobody knew back when the pandemic, no one had all the right answers. You know, this is the first time that all everybody was going through something like this. No one had all the right answers. But the truth is, is that we should have been able to pay these small businesses money to keep themselves, you know, making sure that their employees are paid. Um, because again, and that would not have been such a drain on the unemployment system is that we are giving our small businesses enough capital to have kept those kept paying their employees. And that should have been probably part of the, the, the deal with you get this money. It's to pay your employees and your overhead costs. So that way, your landlord's still getting paid. So now there's not issues with the landlord tenant situation to make sure that your employees are still getting paid. So now there's not a problem with the unemployment system. And certainly, I would have absolutely, which is again, I don't understand this. Um, you know, a, a free market Democrat uh, up against a, a conservative authoritarian regime of DeSantis. I would have also allowed, if you as a business felt it was in your all's best interest to make sure that your employees and the people that are coming into your, your whether it's a new guys, a, you know, concert or small business coming consumers. If you all want to mandate the vaccine, that's your decision as a business. And if you know that if you're going to mandate that I need to see, and we don't use vaccine passports, but I, you know, proof that you've been vaccinated because I think vaccine passports has been used by the radical right yeah, to make sin. it seem sure. like it's a, you know, right. You yeah. know, t- dealing with immigration and they're trying to confuse mm-hmm. the situation. So showing that you have been vaccinated and you know that as a business, you may lose 15% of your customers that don't want to do that. Either, either they've been vaccinated and don't want to show proof because I feel it's their own personal right, or they so choose to not be vaccinated that's on you as a business to make that business decision. I can suffer 15% loss as opposed to I get my artists sick or there's an outbreak at one of my concerts. No one's going to go to the concerts in the future anyhow. So why not make the, make the adjustments at the front end, take the 15% loss. Um, and that should be a decision based on a small business. That's what free market means. And unfortunately, that's just not what has happened here in our state. How are we doing on time, Nikki? 
I think that I've got 11, 30, 15. So you got 15 minutes. So that's okay, good. Great. Um, Tom, anything else before I go to marijuana and red tide? <laughs> we're we're doing wanna, the greatest hits today. The Florida's greatest hits. I did want to ask you just from earlier, you said that your, your father is a diehard Republican. How does he feel about what has happened to the Republican Party over the last few years? You know, um, he's so, I think he's drunk the Kool-Aid. Um, and which is which is surprising because I was taught so much of what the Republican Party was from my dad. You know, he taught me Reagan economics. He taught me, you know, trickle down economics and why that was important as, as he owned businesses and was a successful attorney that I heard, you know, reason why I should have less taxes because I'm going to then use that capital um, to actually open more offices, hire more people um, and, and, and basically government saying I of his way. And so all the principles that he always taught me about, again, free market, less government, less taxes, less spending, um, this Republican Party of today is not that. Um, and so I, I think, though, he is just so he got I, I don't think that he is a, a quote unquote Trump supporter, but I think that he liked some of the messaging that came out of Trump and some of the, the business. Tough talk. Yeah. And, and, and the tough talk. And I think that some of the just the um, pro business rhetoric, because that's, we all know that that's not really what Trump did, you know. And so we, we all know the policies were only help, there to help himself um, and not really the, the working class um, American. Uh, so I, I try not to talk too much politics with him now because I, I do think he's drank a little bit of the Kool-Aid. Um, and and so we, we kind of try to stay very civil, talk about me. Uh, <laughs> and talk about the things that I'm doing for the state. Um, but he also took COVID very seriously. Um, he was the first in line to get a shot. Uh, he was everywhere, never left the house. Uh, I mean, he took it very seriously um, as opposed to maybe others that, that you know, in, in that kind of world didn't. It's brutal then, because you, you see, I lost my uh, parents in 18 and 19 and I was so happy that that happened then and not now because i hear all these stories of friends who've lost their parents or loved ones and they couldn't be with them in their last days and it's just that's something that people don't talk about a lot i I don't know that there's a policy component to that but just the the closure that you get to be able to be with a parent or you know whomever when they're when they're passing and not to be able to do that these past couple years i just it would have killed me to not have been there so it's kind of crazy just to just even during like all the height of COVID last year, my dad would call me and go, all right, I watched all the rhetoric. I'm watching Fox. I'm watching this stuff. You are in the heart of it. Tell me what's really going on. Mm-hmm. And, I was like, and I'd be like, dad, the numbers are really bad. You know, that we're, this is what's happening. And, and if you are, and I said, I had the same conversation with my great, with my grandmother, who is 91 years old, God bless her heart. You know, and, and the first time, you know, she, I, when I guess this probably would have been February, March before everything was completely shut down, she was still playing cards with the girls. And, and I was like, grandma, I was like, if you get this, I can't help you. Yeah. You know, I can't, I can't tell. And this is back when we didn't know ages and we didn't know what was going on. And I said, look, if you're 91 years old, if you're on a ventilator and a 35 year old comes in that needs a ventilator, that 35 year old's getting the ventilator. And I can't, I can't intervene. Please mm-hmm. stay home and take care of yourself. Crazy. Uh, one more question. Cause I, I do have to get this in. Cause I do wear the two hats. 
My wife is a public school teacher. Um, public schools have really been treated like garbage um, here in the state of Florida for, for several years, as well as public school teachers. Um, what would you do to help public schools if you were elected? Yeah. I mean, first of all, we know that we are at the bottom of the country when it comes to funding for public education. And so what has happened uh, over the last 20, 24 years, give or take, is the expansion of choice. Um, and, and choice is okay. And, and, I, and I, I'm, I'm a proponent of it to an extent because, look, not, only, not every kid fits into the same public education model, you know, that going into a class of, you know, 25, 35 students, it's just, it's just different and you got different specializations. But what's happened with the expansion of choice in charter schools, it's been at the detriment of the traditional public education. And so when we all voted for the lottery, the lottery was supposed to come in and enhance the amount of money that was going into public education. And so what they did was they played a whole like you know, trick show here that they put the money in that's from the lottery, but then they took out money from the general revenue. And so we are literally, I think, number 47 in the nation on funding of public education. So we've got to focus on, you know, putting the resources back in there, you know, paying our teachers what they deserve um, and making sure that we are thinking outside the box and creative ways to incentivize our, our schools to do better. Um, instead of, okay, we've got an F failing school. Okay. Let's open up a charter school down the street um, and take kids out of the, of the traditional school and put them in a charter school. That's not the answer. You know, we got to make sure that we're working on getting that F school grade up why is it so bad? You know, is it because we are not retaining our good teachers? Is it because there's so much violence in the school? Um, is it because whatever the reason is, and I think that part of it too, things that I talk about, which is the food, is, is nutritional values, that so many of these kids that are in these F failing schools um, are also living in food deserts. And don't when they come home from the, from school, there's not a hot meal at home that it's processed food. And the only meals that they're getting are in school. So I've called for universal breakfast to make sure that every child in school has access to nutritional food because if they're not eating in school and they're not able to succeed in school, which means they eventually drop out of school and then become part of the criminal justice system. So it's like a kind of a huge rotation. So we got to go, go on to the basics making sure that these kids are eating properly, that they're getting the support at home, that they're getting, you know, we're building, you know, whether it's food stores or urban gardens um, and working on just the very basics of what is happening to these kids um, and making sure that they've got the foundation necessary. And I also, and this is a totally, and I'm going to go totally outside the box and I can take you catch a couple more. <laughs> um, I also fundamentally believe everybody should serve. That um, whether it is in some type of whether it's military, it's Peace Corps, it's Teach for America, it's some organization of some sort that at 18, you spend two years doing some type of service activity, then not only is it a great equalizer. I don't care if you're black, if you're brown, if, if you're white, if you are gay, if you are questioning, if you're male, you're female, whatever it is everybody serves. And so then you also are giving our kids who are living in some of these communities, hey, graduate, we've got a path for you. And then in those two years, while they're serving, they also get skill sets, they get mentors, and then, it, then we can come up with a whole education system afterwards for higher ed, 
on whether they then get their AA doing that, and then they can go off into, um, then, then they get, you know, free to last two years to finish your BA um, or, you know, whatever it is and come up with a plan. Because I do think that one, we need that, you know, infrastructure in our state, but it also gives our, our great equalizer, gives, you know, hope to so many of our kids that may not have hope at home. And they can see, okay, there's a path for me. There's an option going forward, which is also why we need significant juvenile criminal justice reform too. Because the last thing we want is these kids who may have had a really bad day, fell into a really bad crowd, be forever their lives hindered on that bad day, that bad call. Totally agree. Very refreshing to hear. Love that. Um, Really quick, uh, prior to you being on, one of our biggest guests on the show uh, was uh, Joe Redner, who you may or may not be familiar with. Uh, Of course I know Joe. (laughs) But uh, very much a marijuana advocate. Uh, He and Luke LaRoe had cases go up to the Supreme Court about, you know, uh, private medical marijuana production and that sort of thing. I know you're a big advocate uh, in this world, just kind of interested to know what your policy uh, would be if elected governor on, on those issues. Yes. One of my favorite subjects, because everything kind of intertwines on the cannabis world. Um, And and so I talk a lot about breaking the system um, and that the system is corrupt and it works against the people. There's no greater policy that describes that in a nutshell than the cannabis policy of our country. Um, One, it was created twofold. One, it was created to put black and brown people in jail. Um, and keep them out of voting, you know, 80 years ago. And it was also a big play on the hemp side from lobbyists in the paper mill industry um, to make hemp illegal. Uh, And and so that is, and then you've now created a system uh, that is designed to keep people down, um, keep people from being prosperous, keep people in jail. And so what we have here in the state of Florida is a continuation of that. Um, that we created a very limited structure um, and a 30-year nursery requirement, uh, which, again, kept black and brown people out of even the original license holders um, because they didn't have, 30 years ago, didn't have access to that type of property. And there's been federal lawsuits that have backed that up in the pick for plaintiffs class. Um, and then you limited the amount of licenses. And so we have created a, a monopoly in our state that is vertically integrated, which means that everybody who has a license has to grow, manufacture, produce, research, distribute, which means that the cost is extremely high, that you really don't need to have competition because there's only 22 license holders and really only seven to 10 of them that are actually out in the marketplace. So it doesn't matter how crappy your flower is because people are still going to buy it um, because that's all that's all that's out there. Um, so what I propose is twofold. One, we've got to fix medical because I fundamentally believe we still need a robust medical program for those who need it. That is non-taxable. That is a medical grade. That the research is done to make sure that you're creating a formulations that are good for the patients. Getting the research that we've seen in other countries like Israel that have been able to do one molecule for one condition. They've broken down the kind of the cannabis plant to say, okay, for sleep disorders, this is the kind of you know cannabinoid that you need in order to, to help with, with sleep apnea. Okay, for those who have Lou Gehrig's, this is the better strain for you. Um, and so in having a robust, which also allows for our healthcare providers to be covering for annual visits, for co-pays, it becomes part of the medical system, which then decreases the cost of, of healthcare in, in the state. But we have to be breaking up vertical and we need to be giving out more licenses to make sure that we are doing it right and making sure that they're actually doing the research necessary and bring more people into the fold. Then we've got to legalize for adult use. 
that has to happen um, for, again, a, a soapbox here, um, one for economic opportunity. And, and I go selfishly for my farmers right now, giving them an alternative crop, getting people who want into the industry, who have been farmers or just want to grow, come out of the illegal market, who've been growing probably for generations and let them grow. Then it also allows you know people in the, in the entrepreneur space of product lines to distributors, to every you know dispensaries, everything in between. You also then get to fix our criminal justice system. I can't tell you how many times as a public defender, I would see the first line of the police report, the odor of, or, you know. Oh, that gets gets them in the door on everything. Yeah. (laughs) Right. That was, that was their way of getting in the door. Bloodshot glassy eyes and odor of burnt marijuana. (laughs) Right. And then it was my client's word versus the officer's being like, Hey, I didn't have anything. They didn't find a joint. They didn't find anything on me. And now the officer's like, but I smelled it. And that created the probable cause. And, and so that just infuriates me to this day. And really what kind of got me so motivated in this, in this area when I was a PD. So one, it fixes that issue, gets people who are sitting in jail and prison on marijuana offenses out, expunges people's records, that, again, that have destroyed people. Um, it also decreases our costs for our public defenders and our state attorneys and our judges and our courthouses and our jails. So it decreases our criminal justice costs overall. Social justice reform, again, the historical nature of the systemic racism that has been embedded in the cannabis plant. Um, and so you're fixing social justice, you're fixing criminal justice, an economic boost for our state, taxable, that brings in revenue for, again, for whether it's education, affordable housing, infrastructure. And then it also, again, decreases our cost for our healthcare system because more people would rather go and take the five milligram uh, of some type of CBD or THC product um, to reduce a headache than they're going to want to, you know, on, on Advil or Tylenol. And so you're also using a more natural, holistic approach to medicine that reduces our costs on our healthcare system. So this is a win-win-win. That's kind of how I see the world under a Governor Freedom administration. It's funny, such a financial issue being not pushed by a liberal part, uh, you know, nominee and not a conservative one. Because it seems like better for the state, better for the finances. That would be something that policy-wise, it'd be all over. Let me just uh, before we wrap up, one last thing. My seven-year-old daughter Stella Rose is a big fan of yours, and I would. Love to hear you talk to the little seven-year-old girls out there about not having to be, you know, when I had a little girl, I never noticed this before, but we go to the toy store and all the girls' toys were princesses and makeup and nails and all the boys' toys were astronauts and doctors and firefighters. (laughs) And we kind of start our kids off down these paths very on, but someone like you running to be the the leader of our state, I think uh, as a hero to young girls, what would you say to young girls that are, you know, the glass ceiling and kind of, yeah. Well, first of all, I played with uh, Transformers and GI Joes when I was younger, so <laughs> broke, broke that kind of that mold at, at a very young age. Sure. Um, so for for all the little girls out there, I was once you. You know, had the, these dreams of what I wanted to do in life and what I wanted to be, and you know what I was taught and what I say all the time is that there are no there are no barriers as long as you follow your passion, as long as you follow your dreams. Um, there are plenty of people who are knocking down walls and ceilings in front of you. Um, that people that came before me, 
uh, as the first female commissioner of agriculture, I've broken that ceiling. Uh, I was a first female student body president of the University of Florida after 18 years. Um, so a lot of a lot of glass ceilings have been broken and doors that have been opened. But we need this next generation to just knock down the last one. Uh, we still haven't had a female governor of our state and we still haven't had a, a female uh, president of the United States. We broke another one this past year, having our first female vice president, um, especially women of color. Uh, so for all the young girls out there, know that, that, that if anybody ever tells you you can't do something, do it, prove them wrong, and then follow your dreams um, because there, there's nothing that's going to stop you. Um, the world is, is your oyster and just um, relish in the fact that women and girls, uh, we multitask better than the boys. Um, and that we've got, uh, you know, we, we are we are the problem solvers, and this generation is certainly leading on leaning on more women to be running for office and being CEOs of corporations, and because uh, we get the job done. Thank you so much, Nikki. It was a pleasure having you on. I love everything you have to say. You have a lot of big fans down here in Tampa. Um, they gave me Stephanie's contact information because we've got a number of people here that want to do some fundraisers for you. But awesome. I really appreciate your time. I know you're super busy, but uh, we'll get this out to the people and hopefully awesome. get them motivated to vote. Awesome, awesome. Right. Well, thank you guys. Whatever we can do to help you, I got. He's got a big. He's got a big, uh, big microphone, a big megaphone with live music, entertainment, and all awesome. that stuff. So. Yeah, we want to get right. you in there for sure. All right, thank you, thank you so guys. much. Have a good, good day, and good luck to you. You too. Thank right. you. Bye-bye.